for those who've been uh, here, I suppose, uh, visitors amongst or haven't been about for a week or two, we've been uh, going through Colossians, but we've been going through Colossians through the lens of a book called Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire by uh, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmatt, two, uh, I would say, reformed uh, theologians from Toronto. And um, we've been thinking for the last three weeks particularly about how, what the empire is like that we need to subvert. And I suppose we need to get to the point where we move from the empire that we want to subvert to what is its alternative that we've been wanting to try and imagine. And so I suppose this morning, if you want to, we've got our title, Empire versus Kingdom. How do these two things maybe look a little bit differently? And um, I've been, you know, reading Kismat. Some have said who have read the book before. Um, it's not just the easiest read. You've got to take time over it. And I've taken some time over it this week. And last night I had a pretty, I thought, dry kind of look at Colossians 3 for us. And then I just happened to look up and uh, Invictus was on the television. Now, what Invictus was doing on the television in my study, I have no idea, but there it was. So I'm typing away and looking through this and Invictus comes on. And um, Invictus, for those who are not aware, is a movie um, that was uh, made, it came out, I think, last year. And it's based on the 1995 Rugby World Cup and how Nelson Mandela basically used the World Cup in 1995 as a means of trying to continue the unity and the healing of the South African nation. Being about Mandela, it's incredibly inspirational. Um, being set as it is in uh, South Africa, um, for those who've been, then you're looking for, you can name the very streets that some of the stuff's done on. Great movie. And lots of stuff in that movie I think that you could use in sermons, but I'll refrain from all of it this morning. Two things that came through to me last night that fit exactly with this idea of kingdom as opposed to empire um, in Colossians and that should be working its way out in our lives um, is where uh, Mandela basically is doing exactly that. He's bringing in a new order and ridding himself of the old order. And he's doing it with very strategic um, cunning, you might say, but wise and almost pastoral ways, oh, for leadership, that use some of that kind of, uh, those values as they come to think about the country and the way forward. What's happening basically is, as 1995 kicks off, it's only a year after, uh, eight months 1995 kicks off after uh, Mandela's been uh, given presidency in the first democratic elections in South Africa. And it's a very divided country, it's still a very divided country. And still, if you want to see, I suppose, South Africa at its most divided, rugby stadiums might be a, a good place to go, particularly if you're in Bloemfontein, from what they say. But Mandela's come in, and his people are saying, let's take over. Let's change everything. And one of the things that they want to change is this Afrikaner, apartheid, white, dominant sport. It's at the heart of Afrikaner society in a way that sport is not over here. 
Those of you who hate sport, it's, well, dare I say that? I've sort of gone back a step uh, once I make that comment because sport has got all kinds of political agendas even in our own little province. But really at the heart of the Afrikaner society is rugby. So what the blacks are thinking of doing is they're thinking, let's change the colors. Let's change the name. Let's dismantle this old empire. Let's rip it asunder because we've got the power to do that now. Mandela and the movie suggests in a very isolated way, takes a completely different idea on it. And he reckons that if they take that away from the Afrikaner white community, that he and his new rainbow nation lose that part of the nation. That it would eat out their soul. That it would make them less than the human beings that he needs them to be in the economy and the military as this changeover happens. So he goes and meets with the ANC meetings that are saying, let's get rid of the green and gold, let's get rid of um, the, the name Springbok. And he says, no, we're going to do a different thing here. And then he gets himself, because he's now fighting against his own, I suppose, winning because he's Nelson Mandela, he has another step to take because he wants to get himself right into the heart of the Afrikaner community, and he goes and visits uh, Pinar, the captain, visits the players, who early on are not keen on any of this other than Chester uh, Williams running in tries in the corner. They're not keen on any kind of black infiltration into their sport. And the movie is a movie of how Mandela tries to bring inclusion instead of the division and exclusion. And in some ways what we have in our reading today is that one of the differences between the kingdom and empire is that empire will come with force and take over and dominate and cause exclusion unless. The kingdom is about inclusion. And the kingdom doesn't come with force. It comes with humility. Keys, Matt, and Walsh themselves say, not by might versus might, not by regime overtaking regime, but by sacrificial love, absorbing the violence and fury of the powers. This was Jesus' approach to how you subvert empire. Not by might versus might, not by regime overtaking regime, but by sacrificial love, absorbing the violence and fury of the powers. Or as N.T. Wright puts it, the cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers. It was the defeat of the powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ. This is an alternative kingdom. This is what we were thinking about in the crib. This is another imagining that somehow Nelson Mandela seemed to work out 
in his own strategy of nation building in a little cell that they show you in the movie that you could stretch your hands out and touch each side. This is a different way of kingdom. But the other thing that Mandela did with Pinar was interesting because he kind of mentors this captain, this leader of the rugby team. Because at the start of 1995, they're a sorry bunch getting beaten, it seems, in every game. And so when he asks Pinar to come and have afternoon tea with him, which in itself is a political statement, he doesn't use it for political statement. He uses it for leadership mentoring. They sit down, he says, how do you lead the team? What ways do you lead the team? How do you get them to be better than at the moment their performances are, but the potential of what they can be? How do you do that? And it comes down in the end to two things in the movie. Two interesting things when you come to church on a Sunday morning. The two things that Mandela uses and infiltrates into the thinking of Pinar is the, re- the, the written word to be read and the song words to be sung. He gives them this poem Invictus, the reading of which, the reading of which kept Mandela from going insane when he was in prison. A Victorian poem that because he read it and read it and read it, it somehow gave him the strength and the energy to come out of prison and to be the leader that he was. And then one of the battles in South Africa is the new national anthem. Because Mandela reckons if he can bring the nation around an anthem and that they can sing that anthem, that maybe somehow through the sung word they might fuel even a rugby victory. Now, I don't want to talk about Victorian poems. Somebody else can do that. Or the uh, African National Anthem, even though it is God Bless Africa, so it would be decreed as a prayer. What I want to talk about is what we've been thinking about for the last three weeks. What have we been kind of saying to ourselves is the way to subvert the empire? The way to subvert the empire, we would believe from Colossians, is this subversive poetry in chapter 1, verses 15, probably through to 20 and beyond, this probably first century hymn, which they would sing together as the alternative to Caesar. This is who our Jesus is. And then the other thing that Paul does, maybe even here in chapter 3, but certainly in the baptismal ideas of chapter 2, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts and things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds and things above, not on earthly things. Here, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. In that verse, what, what Paul does is he sets us in to that story. This story, this narrative that we need to immerse ourselves in, the written word of God that is something that when we come and read, when we come and sing, somehow in the week, it gives us the energy to reimagine, the fuel to battle against an empire, and in isolation sometimes in the places we live, like Mandela was in isolation, like Jesus was in isolation, change the ways of the world. Like I remember when little Connor was baptized, or was it Henry? It was Henry. And Whitney and I were talking that day about the story. 
and that our baptisms are bringing children into our story because we have a story. And when we get ourselves into our story, we find ourselves involved in a whole other empire. Walsh and Kiesmatt would talk about four things that take us then into this um, sort of ethic, this kingdom ethic of chapter 3. There's a, resurrect, a resurrected ethic. And basically what they say about that is, we, as the people of God, are refusing to bow to the empire because our Jesus, in our story, the center of our songs, is seated at the right hand of God. That is the ultimate kingdom. And this empire, whatever empire it is, is but momentary. So it's a resurrected and it's an ascension ethic. The Jesus that we believe in didn't just die in order that the powers would be defeated, but he rose from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Negro spirituals, and I guess um, what the guy sang may have a Staples um, version, may have a Staples and Jeff Tweedy from Wilco who did the arrangement of the, the song that uh, the band sang today. These Negro spirituals in the plantations way back in the 20th century, they were songs that they were singing that told them the story that was different than the one they were living. They were able to sing songs about a resurrected Jesus and ascended Jesus who gave a, a different perspective to the life they were living on the horizontal. Because they believed in this vertical alternative, they knew that they were more than the people around them were saying. They're not even human. Well, when that master tells you you're not human, it's great to have an alternative story. It's great to be part of an alternative story. And it's great to sing defiantly that we don't believe in this empire, but that we believe in this kingdom where Jesus is not only resurrected, but ascended. And that we are part of a story of constant liberation. The liberation of the Exodus, the children of Israel, so central to the Old Testament story, it's about liberation to the New Testament where Jesus very clearly talks about here in Colossians where he has freed us from the law and the bondage to the law. It's all about restoring what has been broken, a liberated ethic, and of course then an eschatological ethic, which means we anticipate that we know that the ending of the story is different than it might seem. As Tony Campolo has said, it's Friday but we really believe in an eschatological Sunday where God is literally going to rule. And out of that, Walsh and Kiesmet say, we need a seceding narrative or ethic where we start to break away from the ways of the empire. And that's what we get here in what uh, Kenny read to us early from Colossians chapter 3. Again, I suppose as we look at it from the 20th century, here comes the Christian sexual piety or sort of some kind of repression. But we need to see it from the first century place that it was written and the context of the story that it's written in. Because if we look at the Old Testament, it seems that every time idolatry came around, then there was all kinds of 
sexual deviance came around. It's right through what goes on in the Old Testament. And so what Paul's talking about here is a covetousness that what we do with our sexuality maybe actually reflects the society we live in. So as it says in the book somewhere, um, let me see if I wrote down the quote. It's a good quote. Multiple sexual partners is good capitalism. The greed of our world makes its way through into our ethics. Interesting. Wendell Berry, the writer, the poet, the farmer, the ecological thinker, he talks about industrial sexuality that has taken over the world because enough in this generation is never enough. Could we go back to last week and think about it in terms of dessert first? Would that be a way to look? at what goes on in our world. But we come in the kingdom. We come with a different respect for the other gender. We come with a different understanding of what sexuality and its fullness means. That's why in wedding services we talk about the right and proper place for physical relationship because it's at the heart of the social community that God designed to be the best place to bring up children, etc. There's something more to it than the way the Hollywood movies talk about it. That this is something about covenant and intimacy that goes beyond the physical. That we know and believe that there are times when there is enough. Because maybe we begin to believe that the free car going down the mountain isn't really free until it obeys the laws that a car needs to obey before it hits the wall. And what of Andy Gray? The sexism of some comment off air that gets him sacked from a 1.7 million a year job. Am I in the wrong trade? (laughs) I can talk as much waffle and get it as much wrong as Andy Gray can about football 1.7 million. And yet there's something underlying what happened that is frightening in our society. The Sun newspaper has sexism as its headline one morning. Does the editor never open the front page? But all of this is the empire. How many things are sold by sexuality. And we in the kingdom need to come back and say there is a better way. There is another way that respects, that brings dignity, that does it in the way of the kingdom, not of the empire. And then just another, the abuse of dehumanizing, which I guess could have been, if I was clever enough, a seamless link between that And uh, this, don't use malice or filthy language and slander from your lips. Again, a lot of, it's really interesting because there's, I think it's in Ephesians, there's this no foolish talk. And and we are really, really primed for foolish talk. When I was on the radio, we used to say no dead air. 
So if you ask a question and somebody stammered, you had to fill the dead air. But really, in most of our conversations, we don't like dead air. So these two football commentators are waiting for the game to start and there's nothing else to do. And they find out that there's a girl doing the line and there's dead air. So they just foolishly make some joke that they don't really believe. Andy Gray doesn't really believe that this 25-year-old girl has moved from the under-12 Sunday League refereeing to the Premiership without knowing the offside rule. He really can't possibly believe that. Or if he does possibly believe that, why were we paying him £1.7 million for his intelligence? But it was a throwaway line. But the throwaway line betrays, betrays what's deep down in our lives. And it's why the Bible tells us constantly to be careful in how we speak and what we say. Because in throwaway lines, we can demonize or slander. Although Kiesma and Walsh say that the word slander here is very close to the word for blasphemy. Because when we slander each other, or another race, or another gender, we slander the image of God in which these people that were slandering were created in. The empire does that. The empire puts down. The empire demonizes. But the kingdom is a place of grace and love and a sense of that unity where we get it there at the end of the reading, no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ all is all and is in all. This is the kingdom. Mandela, in a strange way, wrote a parable in his life story as to how to get rid of empire and not replace it with empire, but to replace it with a place where everyone feels equal, loved, and pastorally watched out for. This is our role. This is our job. Let's start within the fellowship. Let's move in to the neighborhood and let's get to the ends of the earth with a new ethic that is not one empire replacing the other, but is the kingdom of God beginning to come on earth as it heads towards its completion. Let's pray. Lord, the empire, we just take it in and spit it back out. And yet, when we belong to this story and we have an alternative imagining, and we begin to see others as precious as you see them, then that changes how we treat each other. Whether it's by the words we speak about each other, whether it's about our sexuality, It's about another kingdom where we no longer want to boss, but where we're prepared to serve. Where we don't take it by force, but we take it by humility. And in Mandela's case, 
compromise. Lord, in what we read and in what we sing, equip us for being kingdom bringers. In your name, amen.